Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, House Managers, members of the Senate. What we are involved in here, as we conclude, is perhaps the most solemn of duties under our constitutional framework. The trial of the leader of the free world and the duly elected President of the United States. It is not a game of leaks and unsourced manuscripts. That's politics, unfortunately, and Hamilton put impeachment in the hands of this body, the Senate, precisely and specifically to be above that fray. This is the greatest deliberative body on earth. In our presentation so far, you've now heard from legal scholars from a variety of schools of thought, from a variety of political backgrounds. But they do have a common theme with a dire warning, danger, danger, danger. To lower the bar of impeachment based on these articles of impeachment would impact the functioning of our constitutional republic and the framework of that constitution for generations. I asked you um, to put yourself in, quoting um, Mr. Schiff's, Manager Schiff's statement his father made about putting yourselves in the shoes of someone else. And I, I said, I'd like you to put your shoes, your, yourself in the shoes of the President. And I think it's important as we conclude today that we're reminded of that fact. The President of the United States before he was the president, was under an investigation. It was called Crossfire Hurricane. It was an investigation led by the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. James Comey eventually told the president a little bit about the investigation and referenced the Steele dossier. James Comey, the then director of the FBI, said it was salacious and unverified. So salacious and unverified that they used it as a basis to obtain FISA warrants. Members, managers here, managers at this table right here, said that any discussions on the abuse from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act utilized to get the FISA warrants from the court were conspiracy theories. I told you at the very beginning, I asked, do you put yourselves in the shoes of not just this president, of any president that would have been under this type of attack? FISA warrants issued on people affiliated with his campaign, American citizens affiliated with people of his campaign. Citizens of the United States being surveilled 
pursuant to an order that has now been acknowledged by the very court that issued the order that it was based on a fraudulent presentation. In fact, evidence specifically changed. Changed by the very FBI lawyer who was in charge of this. Changed to such an extent that the Foreign Surveillance Intelligence Court, as I said earlier, I'm not going to repeat it again, issued two orders saying that when this agent, this lawyer, made these misrepresentations to the National Security Division, they also made a misrepresentation to a federal court, the federal court, the Foreign Surveillance Court, a court where there are no defense witnesses, a court where there are, is no cross-examination. It's a court based on trust. That trust was violated. And then the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, James Comey, decides he will leak a memo of a conversation he had with the President of the United States. And he is leaking the memo for a purpose, he said, to obtain the appointment of a special counsel. And lo and behold, a special counsel was appointed. And it just so happens that that FBI agent, lawyer, who committed the fraud on the FISA court became a lawyer for the Mueller investigation, only to be removed because of political animus and bias found by the Inspector General. Then we have a special counsel investigation. Lisa Page, Agent Strzok, I'm not going to go into the details. You know them. They're not in controversy, they're uncontroverted. The facts are clear. But does it bother your sense of justice even a little bit, even a little bit, that Bob Mueller allowed the evidence on the phones of those agents to be wiped clean while there was an investigation going on by the Inspector General. Now, if you did it, if you did it, Manager Schiff, if you did it, Manager Jeffries, if I did that, destroyed evidence, if anyone in this chamber did this, we'd be in serious trouble. Their serious trouble is they get fired. Bob Mueller's explanation for it is, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I can't recall the conversations. You can't view this case in a vacuum. You are being asked, and I say this with the utmost respect, you are being asked to remove an elected, duly elected president of the United States this isn't some, we had references to law school exams, and I love the fact that I thought that was, were great analysis yesterday, and I appreciate all of that. But I want to focus today, or my section, 
on what you're being asked to do. You are being asked to remove a duly elected president of the United States, and you're being asked to do it in an election year. In an election year. There are some of you in this chamber right now that would rather be someplace else. And that's why we'll be brief. I understand. You'd rather be someplace else. Why would you rather be someplace else? Because you're running for president, the nomination of your party. I get it. But this is a serious, deliberative situation. You're being asked to remove a duly elected president of the United States. That's what the articles of impeachment call for removal. So we had a special counsel, and we got the report. And just for a moment, putting yourselves in the shoes of this president or any president that would be under this situation, you're number four at the Department of Justice. His wife is working for the firm that's doing the opposition research on him and is communicating with the foreign former spy, Christopher Steele, to put together the dossier, and it's being handled by Christopher Steele through Nellie Orr to her husband, then the fourth-ranking member at the Department of Justice, Bruce Orr, and all of this is going on, and he doesn't want to tell, and he's testified to this, he doesn't want to tell everybody what he's doing because he's afraid he might have to stop. Might have to stop. How did this happen? This is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And then we ask, why is the president concerned about advice he's being given? Put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his shoes. We've given you, and our approach has been, to give an overview and to be very specific. To remove a duly elected president, which is what you're being asked to do, for in essentially policy disagreements. You heard a lot about policy. Although the one that I still, I, I, it still troubles me. And I'm, I, this idea that the president, it was said by several of the managers, is only doing these things for himself. Understanding what is going on in the world today as we're here. They raised it, by the way. I'm not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm, they raised it. This president is only doing things for himself while the leaders of opposing parties, by the way, at the highest level, to obtain peace in the Middle East, to say you're only doing that for yourself. I think the irony of that, that those statements were made while all of that was going on and, and other acts that this body has passed, some of it bipartisan, to help the American people. Policy differences. Those policy differences cannot be utilized to destroy the separation of powers. House managers spoke for, I know we've had disagreements on the time, it was 21 hours or 23 hours, they spoke during their time. A lot of time. Most of it attacking the president, policy decisions. They didn't like what they heard. They didn't like there was a pause on foreign aid. I laid out before that there was pauses on all kinds of foreign aid. It's not the first president to do it. 
But the one thing I, I'm still trying to understand from the manager's perspective, and maybe it's not fair to ask the managers because you're not the, you're not the leader of the, of the house, but remember the whole idea that this was a dire national security threat, a danger to our nation? We had to get this over here right away. It had to be done before Christmas. It was so important. It was so significant. The country was in such jeopardy. The jeopardy was so serious that it had to be done immediately. Let's hold on to the articles of impeachment for a month to see if the House could force the Senate to adopt rules that they wanted which is not the way the Constitution is set up. But it was such a dire emergency. It was so critical for our nation's national interest that we could hold them for 33 days. Danger, danger, danger. That's politics. As I said, you're being called upon to remove the duly elected president of the United States. That's what these articles of impeachment call for. They never really answer the question of why they thought there was such a national emergency. Maybe they will during questions. I don't know. There was such a national emergency. They never did explain why it was that they waited. They certainly didn't wait to have the proceedings as my colleagues have laid out. I mean, those proceedings it moved in record time. I suspect that we've been here more than the... the the House actually considered the actual articles of impeachment. Is that the way the Constitution is supposed to work? Is that the design of the Constitution? And then the question, of course, came up in, and yesterday on the whole situation with Burisma and the Bidens and that whole issue. And my colleagues went through that a great deal, and I'm not going to do that. But do, do, do we have a, like, are we in a situation, we used to call this, in free speech cases, like a, a free speech zone. You could have your free speech activities over here. You can't have them over there. Do we have, like, a, a Biden-free zone? I mean, was that what this was? That, that it was, it, it's, it's a, you, you mentioned someone, or you're concerned about a company, and it's now off limits. You can impeach the President of the United States for asking a question. I think we significantly showed the question. I'm not going to go through a detail-by-detail detail analysis of the facts. But there are some that we just have to go through. You heard a lot of new facts yesterday in our presentation. Uh, Saturday, what we were pointing to is a very quick overview. And then yesterday, we spent the day, and we appreciate everybody's patience on that, going through the facts. They showed you this, but they didn't show you that. The facts are important, though, because facts have legal ramifications. Legal ramifications impact the decisions you make. So I don't take facts lightly, and I certainly don't take the constitutional mandate lightly, and we can't. The facts we demonstrated yesterday and on, briefly on Saturday demonstrate that there was, in fact, a proper governmental interest in the questions that the President asked and the issues 
that the president raised on that phone call. A phone call, now let's again put your shoes in the, put your feet in the shoes of the president. Put yourself in the president's position. Do you think he thought when he was on the call it was him and, and President Zelensky he was talking to and that was it? Or it was, as sometimes I heard one commentator said, it was people listening in on the call, the president and 3,000 of his closest friends. Let's be realistic. The president of the United States knew when he was on that call there were a lot of people listening from our side and from their side. So he knew what he was saying. He said it. We released a transcript of it. The facts on the call that have been kind of the focus of all of this really focused on foreign policy initiatives both in Ukraine and around the globe. They talked about other countries and other countries. The president has been very concerned about other countries carrying some of the financial load here, not just the United States. That's a legitimate position for a president to take. If you disagree with it, you have the right to do that. But he is the president. As my colleague, Deputy White House Counsel Philbin just said, that's the executive branch prerogative. That is their constitutional appropriate role. So the call is well documented. There were lots of people on the call. The person that would be on the other end of the quid pro quo, if it existed, would have been President Zelensky. But President Zelensky, and we already laid out the other officials from Ukraine, have repeatedly said there was no pressure. It was a good call. They didn't even know there was a pause in the aid. All of that is well documented. I'm not going to go through each and every one of those facts. We did that over the last several days. President Zelensky's senior advisor, Andrei Yermak, was asked if he ever felt there was a connection between military aid and the request for investigations. And he was adamant that we never had that feeling, and we did not have the feeling that this aid was connected to any one specific issue. This is coming from the people who were receiving the aid. So we talk about this whole quid pro quo, and that was a big issue. That's how this actually, before it became a impeachment proceeding, there was, as the proceedings were beginning in the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence under Chairman Schiff's role, there was all these discussions. Is it a quid pro quo? Was it, was it extortion? Was it bribery? What was it? And we are clear in our position that there was no quid pro quo. But then yesterday, my co-counsel, Professor Alan Dershowitz, explained last night that these articles must be rejected. He's talking about from a constitutional framework, even if there was a quid pro quo which we have clearly established there was not. And this is what he said, and I'm going to quote it verbatim. The claim that foreign policy decisions can be deemed abuses of power based on subjective opinions about mixed 
were sole motives that the president was interested only in helping himself demonstrate the dangers of employing the vague, subjective, and politically malleable phrase, abuse of power, as a constitutionally permissible criteria for the removal of a president. He went on to say, now it follows from this that if a president, any president, were to have done what the Times reported about the content of John Bolton's manuscript, that would not constitute an impeachable offense. I'm quoting exactly from Professor Dershowitz. He says, let me repeat it. Nothing in the Bolton revelations, even if true, even if true, would rise to the level of abuse of power or an impeachable offense. That is clear from history. That is clear from the language of the Constitution. You cannot turn conduct that is not impeachable into impeachable conduct simply by using words like quid pro quo and personal benefit. It is inconceivable that the framers would have intended to so politically loaded and promiscuously deployed a term as abuse of power to be weaponized, again, Professor Dershowitz, as a tool of, a tool of impeachment. It is precisely the kind of vague, open-ended, and subjective term the founders and the framers feared and rejected. Now, to be specific, you cannot impeach a president on an unsourced allegation. But what Professor Dershowitz was saying, even if everything in there was true, it constitutionally doesn't rise to that level. But I want to be clear on this, because there's a lot of speculation out there. With regard to what John Bolton has said, which referenced a number of individuals, we'll start with the president. Here's what the president said in response to that New York Times piece. I never told John Bolton that the aid to Ukraine was tied to investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens. In fact, he never complained about this at the time of his very public termination. If John Bolton said this, it was only to sell a book. The Department of Justice. While the Department of Justice has not reviewed Mr. Bolton's manuscript, the New York Times account of his conversation grossly mischaracterizes what Attorney General Barr and Bolton discussed. There was no discussion of personal favors or undue influence on investigations, nor did the Attorney General state that the President's conversations with foreign leaders were improper. The Vice President's Chief of Staff issued a statement. In every conversation with the President and the Vice President, in preparation for our trip to Poland, remember that was the trip that was being planned for the meeting with President Zelensky, the President consistently expressed his frustration that the United States was bearing the lion's share of responsibility for aid to Ukraine and that European nations weren't doing their part. The President also expressed concerns about corruption in Ukraine, and at no time did I hear him tie Ukraine aid to investigations into the Biden family or Burisma. That was the response. Responding to an unpublished manuscript that maybe some reporters have an idea of maybe what it says. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what the evidence, if you want to call that evidence, I don't know what you'd call that. I'd call it inadmissible, but that's what it is. 
To argue that the President is not acting in our national interest and is violating his oath of office, which the managers have put forward, is wrong based on the facts and by the way the Constitution is designed. And when you look at the fullness of the record of their witnesses, their witnesses, the witnesses' statements, the transcripts, there's one thing that emerges. There is no violation of law. There's no violation of the Constitution. There is a disagreement on policy decisions. Most of those that spoke at your hearings did not like the president's policy. That's why we have elections. That's what policy differentials and differences are discussed. But to have, have a removal of a duly elected president based on a policy disagreement, that is not what the framers intended. And if you lower the bar that way, danger, danger, danger. Because the next president, or the one after that, he or she will be held to that same standard? I hope not. I pray not that that's not what happens. Not just for the sake of, of my client, but for the Constitution. You know, Professor Dershowitz gave a list of presidents from Washington to where we are today, who under that standard that they are proposing could be subject to abuse of power or obstruction of Congress. Look, we, we, we know that what this is is not about a president pausing aid to Ukraine. It's really not about a phone call. It's about a lot of attempts on policy disagreements that are not being debated here. My goodness, how much time? How much time has been spent in the House of Representatives hoping, they were hoping, that the Mueller probe would result in I mean, I'm not going to play you, I was thinking about it, playing all the clips from all the commentators the day after, the day after the, Bob Mueller testified. Bob Mueller was unable to answer under his examination basic and fundamental questions. He had to correct himself, actually. He had to correct himself before the Senate for something he said before the House. So that's what the president's been living with. And then we're here today arguing about what? A phone call to Ukraine? Or Ukraine aid being held? Or a question about corruption? Or a question about corruption that happens to involve a high public profile figure? I mean, is that what this is? Is that where we are? And then what do we find out? The aid was released. It was released in an orderly fashion. The reform president, President Zelensky, wins, but there was a question whether his party would take the parliament. It did. They worked late into the evening. 
with the desire to put forward reforms. So everybody was waiting, including, and you heard the testimony from, I will say, their witnesses. You heard the testimony. Everybody was concerned about Ukraine. Everybody was concerned about whether these reforms could actually take place. Everybody was concerned about it. So you hold back. Didn't affect anything that was going on in the field. We heard Mr. Crow worrying about the soldiers. I understand that. I appreciate that. But none of that aid was affecting what was going on on the battlefield right then or for the next four months because it was future aid. And are we having an impeachment proceeding because aid came out three weeks before the end of the fiscal year? Or a six-minute phone call? You boil it down, that's what this is. It's interesting to me that everybody's saying, well, the aid was finally released September 11th, only because of, of the committee and the whistleblower who we've never seen. Mr. Philbin dealt with that in great detail. I'm not going to go over that again. But you know, the new high court, the anti-corruption court, wasn't established and did not sit until September 5th, 2019. So while the president of Ukraine was trying to get reforms put in place, the court that was going to decide corruption issues was not set until September 5th. I want, you, I want you to think about this for a moment, too. They needed a high court of corruption for corruption. I mean, think about that for a moment. Now, that's good that they recognized it. But remember when I said the other day, you, you, you don't make wave a magic wand and now Ukraine doesn't have a corruption problem? The high court of corruption, which they have to have, because it's not just past corruption. They're concerned about ongoing corruption issues. And you could put all of your witnesses back on the, under oath in the next hearings you'll have when this is all over. And you're going to be back in the House and we'll be doing this again. Put them all back under oath and ask them, Mr. Schiff, is there a problem of corruption in Ukraine? And if they get up there and say, no, everything is great now, hallelujah. But I suspect they're going to say, we're working really hard on it. And I, and I believe them. But this idea that it was just vanished and now we're back into everything's fine. It's absurd. Mr. Morrison testified that while the developments were taking place, the vice president also met with President Zelensky in Warsaw. That was the meeting of September 1st. The one, by the way, where the vice president's office said, in response to this New York Times, nobody told him about aid being held or linked to investigations. Are you going to stop are you going to allow proceedings on impeachment to go from a New York Times report about someone that says what they hear is in a manuscript? Is that where we are? I don't think so. I hope not. What did Marson say? He heard firsthand that the new Ukraine administration was taking concrete steps to address corruption. That's good. He advised the president that the relationship with Zelensky is one that could be trusted. Good. 
President Zelensky also agreed with Vice President Pence, this is interesting, that the Europeans should be doing more. And related to Vice President Pence, conversations he'd been having with European leaders about getting them to do more. In sum, the President raised two issues he was concerned with to get them addressed. Now, I've already went over, again, this is just the closing moments here of this proceeding, of our portion of this proceeding. Aid was withheld or paused, put on a pause button, not just for Ukraine. Afghanistan, South Korea, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Lebanon, and Pakistan, and I'm sure I am leaving countries out. But do you think the American people are concerned if the president says, you know, before we give a country, I don't know, $550 million, some countries only $400 million, we'd like to know what they're doing with it. You're supposed to be the guardians of the trust here. It's the taxpayers' money we're spending. There was a lot of testimony from, from uh, Dr. Fiona Hill, John Bolton's deputy. Here's what she said about aid that was being held. This is her testimony. There was a free put, freeze put on all kinds of aid and assistance because it was in the process at the time of an awful lot of reviews of foreign assistance. Oh, you mean there was a policy within the administration to review foreign assistance and how we're doing it because we spend a lot of money. And by the way, I'm not complaining about the money. I don't think anybody doesn't want to help. But we do need to know what's going on. And those are valid and important questions. Manager Crow told you that President, uh, the President's Ukraine policy was not strong against Russia. But Ambassador Yovanovitch stated the exact opposite. She said in her deposition that our country's Ukraine policy under President Trump, actually, her words, got stronger than it was under President Obama. So again, policy disagreements, disagreements on approach, have elections. That's what we do in our republic. For three long days, House managers presented their case by selectively showing parts of testimony. Good lawyers show parts of testimony. You don't have to show the whole thing. But other good lawyers show the rest of the testimony. And that's what we sought to do, to give you a fuller view of what we saw as the glaring omissions by my colleagues, the House managers. The legal issues here are the constitutional ones. And I have been, um, I think, pretty clear over the last week, starting when we had the motions arguments, that my concern about the constitutional obligations that we're operating under. I have been critical of Manager Nadler's executive privilege and other nonsense. We, I want you to look at it this way. Take out executive privilege. First Amendment free speech and other nonsense. The free exercise of religion and other nonsense. The rights to due process 
and other nonsense. The rights to equal protection under the laws and other nonsense. You can't start doing that. You would not do that. No administration has done that. In fact, since the first administration, George Washington, they wanted information. He thought it was privilege. He said it was executive privilege. But let's not start calling constitutional rights other nonsense, lumping them together. Of course, this is from, from a House of Representatives that actually believes the attorney-client privilege doesn't apply, which should scare every lawyer in Washington, D.C. But more, more scary to the lawyers would be for their clients. They say that in writing, in letters. They don't hide it. I would ask them, I don't, I'm not going to, it's not my privilege to do that, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the attorney-client privilege does not apply in a congressional hearing? Do you really believe that? Because then if it doesn't apply, then there is no attorney-client privilege. Or is that the attorney-client privilege and other nonsense? Danger, danger, danger. We believe that Article I fails constitutionally. The President has constitutional authority to engage and conduct foreign policy and foreign affairs. It is our position, legally, the President at all times acted with perfect legal authority, inquired of matters in our national interest, and re having received assurances of those matters, continued his policy that his administration put forward of what really is unprecedented support for Ukraine, including the delivery of military aid package that was denied to the Ukrainians by prior administrations. You know, some sitting, some of the managers right here, my colleagues at the other table, voted in favor of those, wanted Javelin anti-tank missiles for Ukraine. Some of the members here did not. Didn't want to do that. Voted against that. I'm glad we gave it to them. I'm glad we allowed them to purchase javelins. I tell you, I never served in the military. I have tremendous, tremendous respect for the men and women that protect our freedom each and every day. I, tremendous respect for what they are doing and continue to do. But this president actually allowed the javelins to go. Some of you liked that idea. Some of you did not. It's policy difference. Were you going to impeach President Obama because he did not give them lethal aid? No. Nor should have you. You should not do that. It's a policy difference. Policy difference do not rise to the level of constitutionally mandated or constitutional applications for removal from office. It is policy differences. By the way, it's not just on lethal weapons. And President Obama, as I said, withheld aid. He had the right to do that. You've allowed him to do that. Oh, but we don't like that this president did it. So the rules change. So 
This president's rules are different than, he, he has a different set of standards he has to apply than what you allowed the previous administration to apply. And you know what? Or the future administration to apply. That's the problem with these articles. We've laid out, I believe, a compelling case on what the Constitution requires. When they were in the House of Representatives putting this together, did they go through a constitutionally mandated accommodations process to see if there was a way to come up with something? No, they did not. Did they run to court? No. And the one time it was about to happen, they ran the other way. Separation of powers means something. It's not separation of powers and other nonsense. If we've reached now, at this very moment, in the history of our republic, a bar of impeachment because you don't like the president's policies or you don't like the way he undertook those policies, because we hear a lot about policies. If partisan impeachment is now the rule of the day, which these members and members of this Senate said should never be the rule of the day. My goodness, they said it, some of them, five months ago. But then we had the national emergency, a phone call. It's an emergency, except we'll just wait. But if partisan impeachment based on policy disagreements, which is what this is, and personal presumptions or newspaper reports and allegations in a unsourced, maybe this is in somebody's book, who's no longer at the White House, that becomes the new norm. Future presidents, Democrats, Republicans, will be paralyzed the moment they are elected, before they can even take the oath of office. The bar for impeachment cannot be set this low. Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, House Managers, members of the Senate. Danger, danger, danger. These articles must be rejected. The Constitution requires it. Justice demands it. Majority Leader, we would ask for a short recess if we can. About 15 minutes. The majority leader is recognized. We'll be in uh, recess for 15, 15 minutes. Without objection.